Well, hello, everyone. Good morning, good evening, uh, good afternoon, wherever you happen to be in the world. Um, my name is Rita McGrath. I'm a professor at Columbia Business School and an author. Um, and my Friday Fireside chat guest is uh, Thomas Chamorro Kremusik. Uh, who is a psychologist, a professor, an entrepreneur, author, um, born and raised in Buenos Aires, as I understand it, but now you live in a multiple of places. <laughs> the writer of, author of 10 books, um, uh, including the one that I was hoping we would talk about today, which is why do so many incompetent men become leaders? Um, this is being recorded, so please don't put in chat or say anything that you don't want recorded for posterity. Um, and at the moment, I understand you're the chief talent officer at Manpower, among many other roles. Great. So, um, so I, I just thought, let's just start with the basic thesis, right, which is um, the premise of the book is that it's just too easy for incompetent men, <laughs> particularly incompetent men, but I guess incompetent people in general to become leaders. And maybe just walk us through that line of thinking. Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, the book sets out to answer. Well, and first, thank you for having me, Rita. It's, oh, it's a pleasure. I've wanted to be here for a long time. Um, you know, it's a real honor. And uh, I always listen or watch your um, fireside chats. Oh, and I notice there's almost a fire behind, right? It looks it like is a fireside. Yeah, it's it is a real. So, <laughs> so it's like when you get invited to brown back lunches and there is no brown back lunch, there's actually a fireside uh, here. So anyway. <laughs> The, the book sets out to answer that question, um, why do so many incompetent men become leaders? And I often get asked in return, why didn't I just title it, why do so many incompetent people become leaders? Um, and we could, which could have worked, but the reality is that it is actually easier for incompetent people to become leaders when they're male than female. And the main argument I make is that the main answer to that question is that we're overly focused when we pick, nominate, or select people for leadership roles on their confidence rather mm -hmm. than their competence, mm -hmm. on their charisma rather than their humility, and on their narcissism rather than their integrity. So if we were able to pick leaders based on their competence, humility, and integrity as opposed to their confidence, charisma, and narcissism, we would not just end up with more women leaders, but also more better leaders. So that's the book in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. that's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And one of the things you make, I don't think you put it this way, but that, you know, we're, as humans, we're kind of hardwired to follow that, you know, we've got, I, I call it lizard brains, right? You've got this, you know, if a saber-toothed tiger is coming towards you, you want the person who's going to be able to say, you know, go, go, run in that direction, right? And we're sort of pre-programmed to think that that's what leadership today is, but it's really not. I mean, what, what leadership today is about is, you know, bringing the best in people together and, and guiding them towards a common goal, right? So Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, and I, and I like the kind of lizard-brained uh, figure. I also recommend to our audience that they check out a recent book by Mark Van Vucht, the evolutionary psychologist who studied leadership, who talks about the mismatch, so the pathological mismatch between traits that maybe in prehistorical, pre-Savannah times were actually quite attractive and also beneficial for leadership, but are now outdated. So imagine that our brains, you know, if we evolved our brains through 200,000 years or so, and we're still using these archaic models, they're not very valid today when you need to know whether people have empathy, EQ, um, curiosity, critical thinking, self-awareness, etc. And another book that I would recommend is uh, a book called Ultra Society that uh, by a Russian, um, also kind of a, a more anthropologist, evolutionary psychologist who talked about actually the misconception that, you know, throughout most of our times, we were led by these macho-like alpha males. Actually, uh, hunter-gatherer societies were very egalitarian and there were often much more gender balance in that you know, we lived in small groups where everyone had a reputation for being either trustworthy or not, competent or not. And people chose their leaders based on this reputation. But the world was a lot simpler because you always hung out with the same people. And actually, talent was relatively easy to judge, right? It was kind of stuff that is very behavioral and that you could see. Uh, mm -hmm. Now the world is more complex. So, you know, if we want to make decisions on whom to vote, for a president based on a 10-minute presidential debate, it's going to be tricky. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the um, the things that that um, you, you've talked about is is some of the biases that cause us not to elect leaders with um, I think you talk about integrity, ethical, competent, and humble, uh, smart, kind, and honest. You know, I mean, those are all wonderful words. But if that's what we want, why don't why isn't that what we pick? Well, you know, I think partly we we don't really want that, right? Oh, oh. We need that. <laughs> we need we need okay. leaders who are smart, kind, and honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think if you hear so many people say that, then, you know, we've been sort of paying lip service to humility for a while now. And every time that there is a corruption scandal or a leader misbehaves, we talk about the importance of morality and ethics. And of course, today we talk a lot about leaders making rational decisions and being data-driven as, as an asset. But, you know, we talk about it a lot because we don't get it. Right? So we wouldn't talk about it so much if this was the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think at the end of the day, you know, the reality is that what we want is leaders who are entertaining. We're fascinated by this kind of morbid or toxic dark side that leaders have, which is why, you know, there, we won't have too many movies on Angela Merkel, who is a great leader, but, you know, quite uneventful. No scandals, rational uh not ideological objective fair pragmatic that's not interesting well you wrote a, yeah, you wrote you know, a wonderful piece about her day you know she gets up in yeah. the morning has coffee with her husband goes to meetings for which she's well prepared doesn't interrupt people i mean yeah how boring can you be <laughs> exactly i mean personally it will be quite interesting in a, in a documentary on her in a movie but let's face it most people would fall asleep compared to <laughs> let's say watching i don't know the wolf of wall street uh, you know, or equivalent. I mean, mm-hmm. the reality is most of the leaders that feature in the news or in the media prominently that get covered, even people who are arguably uh, exceptional from a talent perspective, like Elon Musk, mm-hmm. uh, are quite scandalous. They're very colorful. They have no filter. And, uh, you know, they have these very almost antisocial tendencies that we celebrate, I think, because in our lizard brains, um, you know, we, we are seduced, maybe even intimidated by these uh, narcissistic traits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, another person that comes to mind would be Steve Jobs, right? Who, you know, on the one hand, total genius, right? But on the other hand, apparently not a very pleasant person in work or life. <laughs> yeah, and so this is it, right? So if, if, if our audience reads Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, they would realize, you know, what, a, what an obnoxious person he was. I mean, you know, there's a reason he got fired from his own company more than once. But, you know, mm-hmm. he would park his car in the disabled park, uh, parking space of his own company, uh, alienate people, bully, etc. And what's quite interesting is for a while, while he was alive, people would talk about the Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs paradox, as if, you know, because he was so difficult and obnoxious, we all have to behave like unpleasant people and that's going to drive our career success. No. First of all, he was the ex- he's the exception, not the norm mm-hmm. to the rule. And secondly, it's quite interesting that now, I think a couple of days ago, the Wall Street Journal covered Tim Cook, right? Mm-hmm. Apple now back to being the most valuable company in the world, 1.9 trillion valuation. Surely he must con- have contributed to some of that. And Tim Cook, from a personality standpoint, is very much the opposite of Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Granted, some people would say, yeah, but Steve Jobs was the visionary. He created everything. And you know, they're still selling iPads and iPhones. But you could argue that the company is performing better without him. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, there's, a, there's an interesting observation that my friend Steve Blank makes. Um, and Steve, for those of you that don't know Steve, he's, um, he's a serial entrepreneur, started I think, nine companies, took three of them public, um, teaches now at Columbia and Berkeley. And um, one of his observations is that one of the interesting things you see in companies is you have a visionary. And they create this sort of Steve Jobs-like reality distortion field. But in most companies, there's only room for one of them. And their number two tends to be a really strong operational guy like Tim Cook. And so when the visionary leaves, the logical choice to replace the visionary is the number two, who's more of the operational person. And so what you have is this kind of visionary growth development, da, 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 and then much more operational. And then, you know, in many cases, the operational guy goes away and then a, a new visionary comes in. Um, and he would cite Disney as an example where that's happened a couple of times. Um, so I, I just, it's fascinating to me. And the other thing about Steve Jobs that I think is really interesting is um, there was a period, as you point out, where, um, 
whatever it was you wanted to do as a CEO, as a founder or an entrepreneur or whatever, you would look at Steve Jobs and your view of what you wanted to do is totally colored by your interpretation. So if you were going to be a real jerk, right? Oh, well, he was a real jerk. So that's the kind of leader I need to be. But if you were going to be, you know, design sensitive and aesthetic and create these incredible teams, well, that's what I want to be, right? So it was almost like divorced from reality. You made of him what you wanted to in a way. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I agree about the number two in command or the more corporate CEO, COO or CEO in the period of maturity, right? And let's face it, I mean, before Tim Cook, Apple tried that and it didn't work out when Scully came and he fired Steve Jobs and then, you know, the company almost disappeared. Mm-hmm. Uh, having said that, you know, I am somewhat encouraged by the fact that even if you look now at the state of big tech companies, I mean, who were in Congress not so long ago declaring, you know, and, and, and basically arguing whether they are too big to fail or not, etc. If you look at the profile, uh, and Satya Nadella wasn't there because Microsoft was and is now not on the table. But if you look at the profile, other than arguably uh, Jeff Bezos, who has become kind of more of a, you know, uh, alpha male and Rumble-like figure in recent years, the others are very much low-key, more empathetic, mm-hmm. Uh, okay, Zuckerberg, you know, is, is, I think, a different kind of creature. But I think people are starting to wake up to the reality that there is a very different requirement of competencies and qualities needed to entertain us in a Netflix TV series or documentary mm-hmm. and to be a great leader, which mm-hmm. isn't new to anyone who has been doing research, scientific or otherwise, in this area. But actually, we do need to fight as much as possible to change people's outdated archetypes of leadership traits and what good leadership should look like. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Jeff Moore uh, about about Alphabet and uh, Google, and he pointed out that Sundar Panchai didn't wasn't like grasping for the job. Um, that that the reason he got chosen is because the only time people could come to a agreement about anything was when he was in the room <laughs> that he managed to kind of bring people together. The uh, CEO of Unilever, um, same sort of thing, you know, not somebody who was like reaching for the job um, in, a, in, a, in a major way. So you recently had an article on, um, on why we don't select leaders. And I thought it would be just interesting to take each of the, your five points um, mm-hmm. in turn. Uh, and the first one was not being serious about integrity, which you've touched on already. Um, what would it look like to be serious about integrity? Would people have a, is there a test you can give people? or <laughs> How would you find out? <laughs> I mean, so integrity is quite problematic, right? Because even though you can, you can predict it with things like science-based assessment uh, or uh, archival data, historical data, I mean, you know, 360 feedback or even upward feedback, if you ask people, do you trust your boss? and you aggregate that, that is a wonderful predictor of integrity. You know, do you think your boss will betray you or, you know, take advantage of you and you aggregate that, that predicts, it's never perfect as you know, it's not rocket science, but on the one hand, you know, you can use things like a big five personality assessment to predict whether somebody is gonna engage in unethical or more ethical behaviors, right? So yes, we could model it and predict for it, but you know, the problem with that is that that looks a lot like just boring conscientiousness and it can smell a little bit too much like conformity, you okay. know? And so people don't like that. And actually, if, if you look at real leaders with a capital L, they're often quite antisocial because they want to disrupt the status quo and change it. They have a profound desire, unhappy desire, you know, driven by their non-conformity with the world to change it. So they look a lot, you know, they are troublemakers, which Mm. is why most of the entrepreneur founders who succeed, and I know you've covered extensively, actually are school dropouts or, you know, have (laughs) trouble. They're quite unemployable from a, from a, you know, personality perspective, you know, Uh exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Richard Branson and, you know, Steve Jobs and, uh, of course, Bill Gates. But even before that, Henry Ford, Carnegie, Rockefeller, etc. Now, Yeah, exactly. Hershey. But, you know, but they, they, yeah, they, have the, they have the talents to back it up. And they're part of the 0.1%, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you get to the point where you want to understand moral leadership, integrity, or ethical leadership in a more philosophical and deeper way, it's quite complicated, mm-hmm. you know. And you have to put up with this a more idealized and utopian type of personality who is going to be a bit anarchic. I mean, you know, even people like 
uh, Nelson Mandela or Gandhi had this profile, right? And they were uh, anti-establishment profoundly, but they're going to replace the status quo with something better. Mm. That's quite complicated in general because you don't know whether what they have in mind is something pro-social. So I call it in a way, you know, it's like narcissistic altruism. They want to impose their own vision and reality distortion on the world, but actually they have ethical, moral principles and goals in mind. That's hard to assess with a science-based assessment or in an interview. But if you, if you just look at people from a perspective of their megalomaniac vision and disruptive personality, you're going to select a lot of people who are going to create more damage than, than, um, than good. Mm -hmm. And by the way, for women, it's very complicated because when women show this more disciplined, conscientious, self-control, ethical, pro-social type of integrity, we dismiss them as not leader-like or boring, conformist, too kind and caring, you know, we, they don't stand out, you know, so they're kind of too nice. Uh, and when they, when they show this kind of more grandiose, megalomaniac, visionary type of altruistic leadership, they're in, we're intimidated by them because we're not used to females expressing this. You know, where people are generally quite uncomfortable with charisma as it is displayed in women. Mm -hmm. Look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who would be a good example of that. And she does scare a lot of people and people are put off by her and they are making remarks that they wouldn't make about her if she was a man. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally, totally. One of the things, that, so um, among my other activities is I run a program at Columbia for executive women called Women in Leadership. And one of the things we talk about in that program is what my colleague Adam Galinsky calls the low power double bind, which is that in any society, the group that's in the minority or the group that has low power uh, has this exact problem. On if you're too nice and warm and, you know, welcoming and all that stuff, you're a lightweight. And if you're too aggressive, you get called abrasive or worse. <laughs> and uh, very, you know, kind of very, very interesting. So the second point you made was that we get seduced, you know, that, that we, 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 you know, we sort of fall into the spell of these, these narcissistic, um, psychopathic almost personalities. And it leads me to wonder, you know, I mean, do we really, do we really want to judge people on the basis of how entertaining or interesting they are? Um, when, you know, maybe what we want is someone who's just a lot more boring and just gets the job done. Um, and I wonder if there's a way to, to, to sort of make that at least something we, we check for. Yeah. Well, you know, this, first of all, this is one of the uh, hardest ones to explain. And, you know, I suffer from uh, my own kind of a background experience because I am, you know, a recovering psychoanalyst at heart, having been, you know, uh, educated in Argentina in an area of Buenos Aires that has the highest concentration of psychoanalysts per capita in the world. You know, is that it's, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually <laughs> Why called, is that? it used to be called Vija Freud. I don't know, you know, we, it's, it's a combination of a, um, sort of a neurotic intellectualism uh, combined with tango and uh, perpetually declining, uh, you know, political society, I guess. But then it's self-perpetuating because in order to become a shrink, a psychoanalyst, you have to be in therapy yourself, you know? So it's like a reverse pyramid scheme in a way. We, we, perpet we create more and more. And, you know, of course, I'm not going to argue that uh, Freud is uh, up or kosher for the standards of mainstream academic science today. Having said that, you know, he was quite intuitive and in his observations, you know, much like some observations are now backed up by neuroscience research, which he didn't have access to because the tools were not available. And he has a wonderful explanation on to answer that question, which is that he says that, you know, typically um, the best you can hope for is that people replace their own narcissistic self-love with the love for someone else who promises to love them back. Mm. And that's how good relationships happen, you know, if you, and why we marry people who look a lot like us, because it's a legitimate way to display our narcissism. That's why managers and leaders hire people like themselves and call them high potential because right. they love themselves. And from a follower perspective, you know, we gravitate towards people who are narcissistic because they have these very enticing megalomaniac visions that tap into our own narcissism, you know? So uh, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you special. 
vote for me, trust me, and we're going to take things to a different level, etc., etc., etc. So now, this is one that is easy to address because every manager, uh, hiring manager, leader, HR professional, or interviewer who ends up an interview with someone and says, I really like this guy or girl, they are very confident, they, are, they, are, they, have, they show great culture fit, we would really get along, I love their style, etc. They're probably focusing on these uh, qualities, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could argue that the only way to focus more on substance and less on style is if you remove humans from, from the equation and use data assessments, like, you know, make selection for leaders like uh, blind tasting of wines, but we probably won't get there, right? But it, I find it quite interesting that the very things we want to attend to are the things we shouldn't attend to today, which is what's the person's gender, age, ethnicity, social class, accent, you know. If you remove all of this and you actually focus on what they have achieved, their experience, their expertise, etc., and you make it more like blind tasting, you're going to de-bias selection and end up with better people, you know. But you have to also then de-bias the performance evaluations. Because if I hire you because I really like you and, I, and you're confident and narcissistic in the interview, and I'm in charge of rating your performance after I hire you a year later, guess what? I'm mm-hmm. not going to reach the conclusion that I made a mistake, that I was wrong, and I'm still going to like you for the same wrong reasons. Uh-huh. Oh, that's so powerful. But, you know, if, if this applies to heads of states and you have a pandemic and there is a real crisis to deal with, guess what? Reality check is out there. Uh, absolutely. What it makes me think of is um, in symphony orchestras, um, mm-hmm. when they first began to introduce the blind audition process, that, um, the, and as I understand it, the reason that this was initially done was there was somewhere in Europe, and I can't remember the details of the story, but basically it was somebody's nephew wanted to get in the symphony, but there was concern that that would be treated with uh, accusations of nepotism. And so they said, well, okay, what we're going to do is we'll have the player play behind a curtain and they'll take their shoes off. And so we won't know, you know, anything about them, uh, except the judges will then rate them on how well they performed. And one of the completely unintended consequences of this was all of a sudden women started getting places in symphony orchestras <laughs> because it was a de-biased uh, selection process. Um, exactly, exactly. So, so you have to do a blind tasting, you know, I mean, and this happens when you remove the humans from the equation or when you can really say uh, someone's achievements have the ability to speak for themselves. Right. But, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard in leadership because leadership is still so much about chemistry, likability, and politics. Yeah, absolutely. So then um, you, you point out that the, the other interesting sort of distortion in the whole leadership equation is that people who seek to become leaders often seek to become leaders not because they actually care about other people, but because they care about their own power and status. Um, and I think that's super interesting. I mean, my, my um, undergraduate degree was in political science. And one of the, the theories they talk about in political science is, um, and this was done with the personality studies of presidents, and that a lot of times these presidents were sort of chronically insecure power seekers. Um, and one of the reasons they wanted the role was that sort of the validation on the one hand, but also then the opportunity to exercise power, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and and yep. uh, um, just, just I, think, I think it's just such an interesting point. Yeah, and so the question there is, how do you move beyond that and how do you address that challenge? And I think, you know, first of all, you have to provide some career progression alternatives for people that do not require them to be in charge of others. You know, if your if your only uh, possibility to move up in your career is that you have to manage people, you know, let's face it, you're not just going to end up with a lot of people who are motivated by greed, power, ambition, and they want to have titles and more money and be respected, which is mm-hmm. fine, you know, and that will always happen. But also explain why explains why more men than women are motivated in leadership roles. Mm-hmm. But you're also going to end up with a lot of people who don't have the talent or the potential to become natural leaders, which is how the Peter principle emerges. Eventually, everyone rises to their own level of mediocrity because what's the logic of taking somebody away from a job they were doing quite well 
because they were doing it quite well, you suddenly give them a team of 10 or 20 people to manage. And they have to stop doing what they're good at and then, you know, do something that they might not even be interested in. I mean, in professional team sports, you have it a lot. The best individual players are rarely the greatest managers. And the greatest mm -hmm. managers were often not illustrious individual players. So you can disentangle this if you provide career opportunities for people that don't involve managing others. And you see some companies doing it, right? So if you're a brilliant individual contributor, good at strategy, innovation, thinking, task, problem solving, I don't want you to manage people. And I'm going to enable you to advance and have more impact and pay you more as you deliver. And then the other thing is that you have to change how you assess and evaluate leadership performance. Ironically, leadership, which should be a resource for the group, the team, something that enables them to work as a cohesive unit and perform as an integrated, coordinated unit, it is a resource for the group and team, and it should be evaluated by what your followers or subordinates think of you and how they are delivering. Mm -hmm. But everyone is promoted based on what their boss and manager thinks of them, you know. So inevitably it creates this kind of a paradoxical and somewhat toxic situation where your performance becomes detached from your reputation. And if you're busier managing up and sucking up to your boss and managing impressions and playing the game, the dirty game of politics, and you're Machiavellian and engage in tactics of manipulations, you mm -hmm. will advance your career, even if you're not being a good influence on your team. Mm -hmm. And those who are um, valued by their teams might be overlooked. Mm -hmm. Again, there are agenda differences here as well, because women are more likely on average to focus on the team, develop others, develop others' potential, nurture their talents, and spend less time politicking and managing up. In mm -hmm. fact, when we point the finger at women and say, you should lean in, we're in effect telling them, why are you not promoting yourself more and you know, playing this game of politics or bullshitting your way up mm -hmm. so that you're more successful? Mm -hmm. Which in a way is pragmatic advice, but it perpetuates a very corrupt and uh, flawed you know system yeah and we we run into i run into this all the time with the women in leadership program because you know you've got this tendency i think in that that sort of world of um which is not i mean i'm a strategy innovation person so the whole women thing is sort of <laughs> i recently adopted it as a bit of a, a challenge um but one of the challenges is you know there's a there's a trope that sort of goes fix the women you know, if we could just get the women to behave more like the men, things would be, they would be, they would be more successful. And so what we try to say is, well, you know, there's some things you can do for yourself that, that will help you, you know, articulate your vision and your brand and some of the things you need to do to get a little bit of that charismatic, follow me, I know what I'm doing kind of flavor to it. But the more important challenge is how do we change the organization so that it is better able to make these kinds of judgments, you know, better able to exactly. accept diversity. Um, and that's another thing that I think your work really sheds an interesting light on, which is, um, you know, and it, it, it recalls some work that um, Kathy Phillips did. And briefly what she did was she took, um, she had a creative problem solving task and she did homogenous groups, largely composed of white men and diverse groups composed of men, women of color, blah, 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 and she set them to a creative task. And one of the most interesting findings to me was that the homogenous groups felt great about what they had done. You know, we all got in the room, we spoke the same language, it went so smoothly, we finished in record time. Blah, and the diverse groups were just wildly uncomfortable. I mean, it was like, oh, yeah, I didn't know how that person, I didn't know how to communicate, what were they trying to do? It was so effortful. And yet the homogenous groups did a lot worse on the problem solving task than the diverse groups. Now, one of the things that I fear is if you look at the leadership or entities, you know, the leadership C-suite people of most of the world's organizations, they're kind of male and homogenous, and they probably think they're doing great. And yet empirical evidence suggests that is not, <laughs> not the case. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, a couple of quick observations. You know, the first is that, uh, and I'm a big fan of uh, Francesca Gino's work and all the kind of, you know, constructive nonconformity research, but it's really quite interesting because, of course, and, and Amy Edmondson, of course, on of course. psychological safety. I mean, the, the, 
the most advanced form of leadership that you can see today uh, involves creating truly diverse team and an inclusive culture that translates that diversity into a plus. Because if you just get diversity, people aren't going to get along and it's mm -hmm. going to backfire. You know, right. it's, uh, I say it's like a, a root canal without anesthesia. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not going to work. Um, having said that, to your point, if you're evaluating success or performance or effectiveness from a self-report or self-perceived perspective, of course, you know, reality distortion can go a long way. I mean, humans are really good at it. They're really good at making self-serving and self-enhancing interpretations of the world. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, most of us, if there is a choice between understanding reality as it is or interpreting in a way that makes us feel great about ourselves, we will choose the latter. Mm -hmm. But if you push this logic to its kind of ultimate uh, extreme, it's going to be very hard for most managers to deliberately employ, hire, and promote people who disagree with them. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, who on earth wants to work with people who are a pain in the neck and who are difficult to manage and who tell them that they're wrong all the time? You know, it's, it's a really utopian kind of a destination and we should push for it because the alternative is group thing, you know, a cult rather than culture. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a self-destructive in a way. But uh, I think the best case scenario is somewhere in the middle of these, these two extremes, right? Yeah. Well, I think also that um, when I look at people who are really good at making sense out of uncertain circumstances, and we've had a lot of questions in the chat about what kind of leadership do we need right now, you know, that we're dealing with this pandemic. Um, and one of the things I would observe is they're very good at listening to having their assumptions challenged. So an example would be um, Alan Mulally when he was at Ford. And he talked about one team and he talked about, you know, we're, we're going to have this meeting once a week where we talk about what's going wrong, you know, and, and, uh, and then help each other with that. So rather than hide the bad news, get it out of there. And he had a wonderful phrase, which I thought was great. And the phrase was, you can't manage a secret. Yeah. And I think part of what makes Alan um, unusual among a lot of the CEOs I've ever met is that his, his ability to get people to indeed constructively disagree or say, that's not how I see it. Or, you know, from where I sit, that doesn't look like the right choice. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a very unusual quality. It is a very unusual quality. And I think, you know, the, the concept, um, and, and I know that, uh, you know, there's a book coming out, which is a strong candidate contender for best business book uh, of this year, which you might have seen in preprint on kind of a cultures of radical transparency and mostly Netflix, right? Based and you know, it's not the natural thing. I mean, it's oh, not the natural Aaron thing. Myers? Aaron Myers book? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So just a little, a little promotion here. Uh, yeah. So Aaron's going to be with me uh, later in September. Great. September That's wonderful. Yeah. So, so yeah. she and, um, and uh, Reed Hastings have written this book about, about the culture at Netflix. Um, so yeah. I'm going to have her talk about that. But say more about the radical transparency. It's not, I mean, it's not the natural thing, right? So if I'm sure we have managers and leaders uh, or people with managerial responsibilities listening to us right now, and the default option, if you're a successful person who is in a management or leadership position and has attained a certain status, is to shy away from negative feedback and criticism and the default behavior of those who you manage is of course to tell you that you're great and suck up to you maybe they're even being honest because they respect you and they admire you but there might be that it's good for them to tell you that you're great and feed into your ego so you can break this natural kind of force by actually making it that's why psychological safety is so important but you have to create the conditions and make it easier for others to critique you. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, why radical transparency is very important as a cultural bastion, but it's not natural. So I love to ask my team, what could I have done better? Mm -hmm. If you were in my position, what would you have done differently? Mm -hmm. Tell me three things that disappointed you about you know, my management or leadership this year. And so if you force everyone to speak up, and of course you don't punish them when they do, then it's uncomfortable, but you can actually develop your leadership skills. Mm -hmm. And we need more of that. And to answer your question, you know, there's been, of course, over the last five months, I've been asked a lot, 
what type of leadership style is needed in a crisis or to manage a pandemic. And I said, well, you know, we need leaders who are smart and data-driven and capable of making rational decisions. We need leaders who are curious and able to learn new things because this is unparalleled and, you know, with the, the world the word unprecedented has become a cliche and we shouldn't use it anymore, right? Because of this. We need leaders who are humble and understand their limitations. And we need leaders who have empathy and who are honest and who are coachable and self-aware. Mm -hmm. So do we need a very different type of leader? Yes, because usually we didn't get this. But actually, the pandemic and the crisis has emphasized that what we needed before is even more important now. Because again, you know, we shouldn't have needed a pandemic to realize that we're generally better off when we have leaders who are smart, kind, and honest. <laughs> but the pandemic and a crisis exposes those leaders who are not. When everything is going well, you're more likely to get away with deficits around smart, kind, and honest. But now, you know, we really need that. So, you know, so I think sometimes, you know, it is a little bit like, I don't know, the meteorite or the asteroid hits the earth and some people were better able to cope with that or not. Or like the person who is taken to ER and they have a heart attack because they haven't been exercising enough or they've been eating more unhealthy. There are warning signs that you can leverage to learn and get better. Or if you ignore it, we will go back to the same and the same and the same over and over again. You know, progress is not a straight line, yeah. but we do have the capacity to learn from our mistakes. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've been um, studying a lot is, is the, this whole notion of who benefits and who doesn't uh, from economic resources. And, you know, the, the, the rise of a really... Um, you know, bad jobs kind of economy at the bottom of the economic strata. Um, I just think it's a very concerning thing. And I think we're going to need leaders who are able to better cope with that, that sort of social contract um, issue. And, and I do think it's important that, that there's empathy and that there's those kinds of things. And of course, one of the big discussions is, um, are we still going to be, you know, bowing to the all, to all, all, all knowing power of the shareholders, or are we going to think of, you know, balancing things out a little bit more? And it'd be interesting to see what kind of leadership. And do you, and do you, and do you, and do you think, you know, do you think there is change in the air? There is a paradigmatic shift coming like, and let me qualify this question. Like, you know, I often think ultimately, and I try to look at things from a non-ideological, apolitical perspective and I'm under no illusion that I manage but I try right my sense is that you know if the average American or the modal America American woke up with Denmark as a context they will be profoundly unhappy still today and if the average Dane of course woke up with the American context which by the way means more wealth bigger stock market big tech etc driving you know I think it depends a lot on what you want to optimize for. If your measure of progress is how well the average person is doing, then clearly there are signs of decline in the US and a lot of Western countries because inequality is widening, you know, and social mobility has gone down here in the last 40 or 50 years. But if your idea is to optimize for how successful the uber rich can be and how many billionaires you have, of course, uh, America is doing very well. So mm -hmm. do, you, do you think there is a change in priorities, in shift? I'm interested in that because ultimately that's how you measure success, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, the way I would frame that is um, if you look at the first Gilded Age in the United States, which was yeah. roughly the period from after the Civil War to about 1910, um, what you had was basically class warfare. I mean, you had incredible wealth among the elites. Um, and, and just the mass of workers just in terrible situation. I mean, Dickensian, horrible, almost, you know, just, just really, really bad conditions. Um, and then there was a massive, there was a massive um, recession in 1893. Um, and that set in motion um, really significant shifts in, in power among uh, labor organizers and so forth. So let's fast forward to now. What we've got is some similarities and some big, big differences. So the things that are similar are we've got a massive inequality. You know, you've got concentration of power among corporates in a few hands. So very similar to Standard Oil and, you know, the, the things mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. that we had back then. Yep. Um, what we don't have is a, 
that that sort of class warfare consciousness among people at the bottom of the economic rung. And uh, I mean, a lot of jobs got created in in the, the, the expansion post 2008, but they're crappy jobs. <laughs> you know, there are 36 million Americans right now who, who earn less than $15 an hour. Um, that is not enough to live on. And right. so I think they, there are the seeds of something that could produce a different kind of conversation. Um, I don't know whether those seeds will actually be ignited um, or whether, you know, it's just going to be the elites continuing to perpetuate the, you know, frankly, the system that's worked really well for them, you know, so, um, so you know, I, I, I'll, I'm not making bets. What I would say is there's at least four possible scenarios, right? There's a absolute misery scenario where, you know, the economy is just flat and, and we are, um, you know, just continuing to be so unequal. Uh, but but there's also a scenario where you could see leadership come in that would say, hey, you know, the way this, the way resources have been allocated in society are not serving us well. Mm-hmm. Um, and by a lot of metrics, the U.S. is not doing very well. You know, our rates of innovation have come down, business formation is down, um, profitability of individual companies is up, but but the sort of broad base for the next generation of prosperity is not not, not really where it is. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I think it's it's also very hard for the average person and voter to take a long-term perspective. You know, I mean, I generally think everyone votes with their own best interests at heart. You know, and I don't think people are um, stupid or naive. You know, uh, it's hard to know whom to trust, and you know, it's hard sometimes to choose someone who can even deliver when they have the right intentions. Mm-hmm. But what's what's very hard and uh, you know, there's almost no practical purpose for an individual voter to take into account a 1,000 or 5,000 year perspective, you know, that put things into, in, into a context. And uh, so, it's, so it's interesting, you know, and I think uh, sometimes it's a little bit like uh, you look at yourself in the mirror every day and you see no change. But if you look at yourself 20 years ago or 40 years ago, you can see big changes, you know, and uh, ultimately leaders are the main agent of these changes, good and bad. Mm-hmm. So one, one question from our, our viewers was, um, is there a behavior you think leaders that are in place now need to unlearn? I mean, confidence, of course. Uh, it's just, uh, we, you know, I often say in, in my, you know, 20 years or so of coaching executives that if I have to uh, summarize uh, that job, it's not just about giving them feedback they don't want to get, but also lowering their confidence because most Mm -hmm. suffer from being overly confident, not Mm -hmm. underconfident, you know, Mm -hmm. which is in, in, and that, by the way, includes women, not just men. Mm -hmm. So I think it comes with being in a position of power to kind of uh, overrate yourself and your expectations. So We say humility is important, but it's not just the ability to pretend that you are humble and modest and self-deprecate, but internal humility, questioning mm-hmm. yourself. I mean, I think imposter syndrome in leaders is a wonderful thing. You know, if you don't believe your own hype and you have the ability to be, you know, woken up by night by your own nightmares of thinking you're a fraud, great, <laughs> because you're going to do something to close that gap, you know, between your self-perceptions and uh, and your actual talents. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, uh, intuition, and I've, I've seen in the chats come up, you know, someone referencing Malcolm Gladwell and probably about, you know, Blink. He actually has a good definition of intuition there, and I don't know if it's his or not, but feelings about facts. It's very hard for us to not pay attention to our feelings about facts, but, you know, there are the facts. Reality, as someone once said, is that which doesn't go away because you stop thinking about it. <laughs> so I think being data-driven and reality-oriented is really important. And for that, leaders need to unlearn their intuition, which is terribly difficult if you're relying on your experience and you succeeded thus far based on you know, your gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So recently you've written about um, authenticity, which... Uh, you know, and in the popular mind, in, in a lot of a lot of the sort of coaching leadership literature, they talk about you have to be an authentic leader and be vulnerable and, you know, bring your whole self to work. Um, and you're one of the few voices I've read that says, you know, maybe not so fast. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, and I, and I would distinguish between the two. Um, uh, I think vulnerabilities are a more interesting and nuanced kind of quality in leaders. And uh, Amy Edmondson and I are just working on a piece on this for are you working HBR with Amy? on the vulnerable, yeah, vulnerable leader. And I think it's very interesting because it has the potential to decrease our interest or attention for super tough and, you know, megalomaniac overconfident leaders. Of authenticity, however, I am a big critic. First of mm. all, I think it's very poorly defined. What does it even mean? I mean, I've been trying to not be myself every day and I, I'm struggling. I, somehow I'm always me. I, I have no other option, right? I mean, I, I, I tried to be you, I tried to be Miles Davis, and I tried to be Lionel Messi, but I can't. I'm still me. <laughs> so if, if by authenticity we mean just be yourself in the way that you don't worry about what others think of you and you are the natural version of you, an unfiltered and uninhibited version of you, I think that's very dangerous advice for young people. If they do that, they will probably have trouble. Um, most of the people who succeed in the world in any environment are pretty good at putting their best self at work and present, you know, uh, Irving Goffman has, of course, done some great work on this in the 60s and 70s on self-presentation and the theater of work, etc. You should care about what others think of you. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be a fake or a fraud. But unfortunately, we're not paid in our, by our employers or careers for just being ourselves, saying what we think and doing what we like. I mean, you know, the real you or the unfiltered version of you is someone who maybe four or five people in the world have learned to love or at least tolerate. And, you know, you shouldn't assume that your colleagues or your boss are in that category. <laughs> That's so, you know, I, I, I do think that, you know, this is, this is um, advice that comes in, in the context of the consumer society that tells us, just be you, we value you for you, who you really are, and you are special and better than everyone else. Well, you know, that's not true. You're mm -hmm. most likely close to average in every category, just like everyone else. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing because the world is fundamentally optimized for people who are close to the in-between thing. And I'm not, I'm not trying to promote conformity and uh, mindless obedience here, but let's not be fooled by the idea that if you tweet obnoxious comments, you're going to be Elon Musk, or if you tell people that they're morons, you're going to be Steve Jobs, because they have the talents to back it up. <laughs> and we admire these people, but you wouldn't want to work for them or with them. And I think civilization is mostly uh, a successful product of repressing our unfiltered and toxic tendencies. Interesting. So one of the things that you talked about um, re very recently is, um, so we, we, we now have this idea of some people are going to go back to the office, some people are going to be working virtually, and the political landmine that that can open up. And since that's quite topical, um, I thought perhaps if you could elaborate on that. Well, yes, because, you know, I, I, I've been reading lots of interesting work, writings and research, and aside from, you know, doing my own research on this, and this kind of old debate has now reemerged as to whether people are better working from home or working in an office, you know, and there's obviously pros and cons to both. But then I thought it's a stupid question because one size does not fit all and some people would prefer one, the others would prefer the other. So surely flexible alternatives or hybrid workplaces are the future, you know, and if you can offer a choice, which a lot of companies have been doing even before the pandemic, that's the best case scenario. Having said so, I think actually there is a big, big problem with giving people the option if you still value presentism more. If there, is a, if there are brownie points or bonus points for showing up, and let's say we have an important leadership meeting and 10 people are in the boardroom and 50 people are dialing in or on Zoom, and a lot of wheelings and dealings, politicking, influencing deals are made when you're not on Zoom, which happened before, of course, then inequalities will exacerbate. And furthermore, there's going to be additional gains in political capital and reputation for those who show up. And, you know, my favorite comment in the early stages of the pandemic, when people were sent back home, a client of mine said, 
but without the office, how will I pretend to work? And it's a wonderful <laughs> comment because it's, it's both cynical and the reality of the fact that most people are still rewarded or not for the reputation and appearance. So hybrid and having a dual structure is great if companies learn to evaluate output, what people produce, and we move past the kind of precarious stage of presentism. Yeah, the, the FaceTime um, kind of issue. Yeah, I mean, one of my students years ago uh, was working at a, at a financial services firm. And what he would do at about five o'clock is he would put his jacket over the back of his chair. He'd get a fresh can of Coke from the Coke machine and he'd open it up and he'd programmed his computer screen to sort of have a screensaver that looked a lot like a spreadsheet. And then he went off to South Street Seaport and had a couple of hours of drinking with his buddies, came back, picked up his jacket and went home. <laughs> nobody was the liar. <laughs> well, I have, I have, a, I have a, even like a, another kind of loop or variation of that story, which is in one of my earlier business, earliest business trips to Japan. Uh, I was on my own, jet lag, late in a sushi bar. And there was this guy with his suit, jacket, Japanese. We started talking and, you know, he would buy rounds of beer and drinks. And we talked and I said, okay, I have to go home now because I've been fired from my job six months ago, but my wife doesn't know. And I'm continuing with the same. So he wasn't just pretending to work to his boss, but at home, right? <laughs> and only in Japan could that happen, you know, taken to that extreme. But it's Absolutely. like, wow, his honor is still at stake. And I was his vehicle for pretending that he's still working <laughs> with his wife. So, you know. That's a wonderful story. So we've got a few minutes left. And I thought what might be fun to talk about is... Um, remedies. And I, I pulled sort of four out of some of what I've seen. So uh, get rid of interviews, find some kind of objective measures of output, promote on competence, humility, and integrity, and, uh, and, and you know, stop imposing higher standards for women than, than we do for men. Um, and I think at one point you've made the observation too that um, the fact that so many women leaders are doing really well in this pandemic um, is that they probably had to be a lot better and work a lot harder to get to leadership positions than equivalent, you know, men did. Um, so are there other things we should be thinking of to begin to get the better leadership that we would all benefit from? No, you know, so I'm a, I'm a big, I mean, I, 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 I have a vivid imagination and I, and I love complexity, but at the end of the day, I think if solutions aren't simple, they're not going to be practical, you know, so nobody can predict and we've, especially realized that in the last six months, what the future will bring. And who knows, you know, hopefully we'll save the planet. And, you know, uh, not so long ago, we used to worry about AI and machines taking on our jobs. And look what happened, right? It's not the machines, it's just a virus, right? Which in the grand scheme of things isn't like precisely novelty. It happens every 100 or 200 years. But I think that for us to prepare for an annex uncertain or unpredictable future, we have to bet on safe options. That's why I think, you know, even though we don't know what the future will bring, we're probably going to be better off if we put people in charge who are smart, kind, and honest. And we know how to do that. This mm -hmm. is the opportunity, right? And so I wrote a, an article with Aviva Wittenberg-Cox on whether the pandemic will reshape people's views on leadership. And it's not really about exacerbating the gender war or the ideological discussion on gender, but it's just to remind people that we are better off if we have people in charge who make data-driven, rational, logical decisions, care about others, and have integrity and ethics. And yes, in the pandemic, female heads of states have shown that they have these qualities more often than men. And of course, they were elected or selected in cultures that enabled these more meritocratic selections. So I think, you know, we have learned a lot of what works and what doesn't. So often it's just basically trying to suppress, suppress our self-destructive tendencies, you know. Mm. I mean, you know, and, I, and, I, and again, you know, if you take climate or the environment as another example, we know what the evidence says and what behaviors will improve things. But it's sometimes hard for people to uh, make the right choices between um, apparently not so enticing short-term decisions and wiser long-term decisions. You know, mm -hmm. it's no different from saving or looking after your health or looking after your children. 
Yeah, as my, my friend Marshall Goldsmith is fond of saying, none of these things are complicated. They're just really hard. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the groups that I'm sort of loosely affiliated with is a group here uh, called uh, Extraordinary Women on Boards. And it's it's women who kind of came together out of a desire to really share their experiences and so forth. And what I'm wondering is, you know, if you, especially for publicly traded firms, if you think about making some of these ideas a board level conversation where, I mean, fundamentally the boards hire, fire, evaluate the CEO, right? That's, that's one of the jobs that they have to do. Um, is there some way we could begin to influence those conversations? Because I, when I look, when I think about the publicly traded companies I work with, certainly I don't think that comes up at the board level. You know, people aren't saying, is this person kind? Is this person honest? Does this person, maybe maybe a little bit about integrity, but it tends to be more in the sort of HR compliance form of integrity rather than is this a real person who really operates fundamentally with integrity? So any, any hope there? Well, you know, I, I think smart, we, we typically value more, but mm -hmm. we're confused by what it means because mm -hmm. often it's still, you know, we focus too much on hard skills, resume, experience. And, you know, when you say someone is the smartest person in the room, it no longer has a good connotation because it doesn't necessarily mean that they are a fast learner, curious and logical or data driven. But it's kind and, kind and honest that we undervalue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, um, it, it's important to understand that uh, men are currently disadvantaged when they show kindness and when they mm -hmm. show honesty because mm -hmm. people think, oh, you know, let's dismiss them. They're not leadership material, you know, mm -hmm. because there is, we, we assume that things like drive, greed, fearlessness or recklessness are more important qualities in leadership. So I think, you know, with public, I mean, I, I'm often asked whether I believe in quotas and uh, affirmative action. And I say, actually, generically, as a principle, I don't like it because I believe that you can, you know, have more women or more minorities in charge, but if they just replicate the bad habits or behaviors of the, of the status quo, it will backfire. You know, if 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 we have more women in publicly traded companies, boards, etc., but they are they they out male males in masculinity, it's a disservice to all the good potential leaders in the world, female and male. Um, so I think that uh, um, you know it's quite interesting. You talked about the double bind, and you know when when men are overlooked or disadvantaged or ignored because they have empathy, they're kind and caring, they're not pathologically ambitious, and they have honesty and integrity, that really is a, 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 an alert or indicator that we need to revise our models, you know? Yeah. So I think, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm not a big believer in affirmative action, but I think, you know, at the same time, um, if, you, if we hadn't fined people from, for not wearing seatbelts, they wouldn't have, and more people would have died. And if you don't tax people for smoking and drinking, more people would smoke and drink and it has bad consequences, you know, so sometimes you have to force humans to do what is good for them. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, you know, I think a lot of publicly listed or companies in general are under pressure, reputational pressure to improve their DNI initiatives because they're scared of being sued or having a bad image, which means they don't actually believe that there is a benefit in increasing diversity and having more women. But it's okay for me. It's like the second best choice to actually understanding the data and the science and leveraging and unlocking human diversity. Because it would still have some role models and more, it, it, will, it will change the new normal, you mm -hmm. know? And I think in that sense, you know, if somebody had, anyone had fallen asleep in the 50s or 60s and woken up today, the world would seem very liberal, progressive, and we have advanced a lot. But by the same logic, I hope that if we fell asleep today and we wake up in 50 years and look back at 2020, it would seem very chauvinistic, very sexist, mm -hmm. and we, we would look at things like lean in as kind of benevolent sexism, you know? Because that, yes. would, that, would, that would mean that we have continued to make progress. Mm -hmm. that, that's a wonderful note to sort of end on. So last, um, last question for you. Um, well, how can people find more? So they love this conversation. How do they get, 
how do they get more of you? And well, and yes. So you know, you will retweet, and I will retweet, and uh, <laughs> but the, the but the but the you know, so the I think the the easiest way is my website, which is drthomas.com. So dr thomas with no h dot com. And, and otherwise, we're in touch. You know, it's a, we're a small group trying to make a difference in uh, leadership and talent thinking. So, Absolutely. you know, it's, uh, if people have listened to this, they already know where to find out more. Oh, great. Well, I just this has been such a pleasure. The hour just flew by. Um, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you maybe in New York, maybe in person. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And don't forget to switch off the fire. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. Okay. Bye, Rita. Thank you. Bye bye.